the Shrapnel Podcast, and today we're joined by Ed Spence. Ed is a nephew of Gusty Spence, and along with his father, Billy, Ed formed and ran the Orange Cross, the first loyalist prisoner welfare movement in the early troubles. You're very welcome, Ed. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. So, if you can take us back to the beginning, how did the Orange Cross start? And, you know, because people listening to this, and we'll have a lot of people down south particularly, who don't know a lot about loyalism in the Troubles. So take us back to the, the, the period when Gusty was arrested and subsequent events. Well, I, I'd refer mostly, you know, initially we go back, I would think, to 1862, you know, the event that the, the laws run. Uh, we were all, my dad, Billy Spence, and obviously Gusty's brother, and myself were members of the Prince Albert Temperance Yellow 1882 Lodge. And in 1862, in September, it was the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Ulster Covenant. And the Lodge uh, held a, an event in Creighton Street Orange, sorry, Creighton Street Unionist Hall uh, <clears throat> to commemorate and rededicate ourselves in similar terms to the to the Ulster Common in 1912. And which what we did that night was to have the group there. It was a social night, but people who were there were actually going to re-sign the Covenant, update it, of course, uh, in similar terms the way they did the Covenant in 1912. Which would be a list of all the names, sign and signatures, and then each person after that would get a, a small copy to keep as a souvenir. <clears throat> and, and that was really an event that sort of stuck in our minds within the next 10 years, which sort of helped us to raise funds and give us an idea to raise funds for what would eventually be the Orange Cross. And over the next couple of years, even in 50, 60, 62 was the final campaign of the IRA border. Attacks on, on, on various police stations went heavy along the border. Uh, everybody knew that that wouldn't be the end in 62K. That would never be the end of the IRA. What they wanted to do uh, to, to get their ultimate goal of being out of So it, it, there was always going to be things that would happen you know, in the years that come. And 64 was another one devastated rats there. And obviously in 66 came. Uh, Covenant Day, or sorry, White Rock Day on, on the last Saturday in June in 1966. Uh, there were verbal attacks on the White Rock Parade going from the Shankle here, White Rock, to White Rock Orange Hall. And obviously they had that in people's mind. Unfortunately, that night of that overnight into the Sunday, and the that happened in the Shankle, uh, was a, a shooting at Melbourne Arms. Subsequently, uh, several men were arrested. Uh, in question in relation to the, to the word of that night. Uh, Gussie's pants was not arrested until a couple of days after that. And after interrogation, what have you, three, three men were, uh, returned into, into custody, charged with the murder of young Peter Ward. That was Bob Wellington, uh, Gussie's pants, and Shane McLean. The troubles then seemed to come out of it after about the next three years. Everybody knew, just let me go back to them, everybody knew from day one that Gusty Spence was not, <clears throat> was, 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 it was a political trial. Uh, there was evidence all there for him. When it went to the Devastations Court, the magistrates uh, threw Gusty Spence's name out of, the, out of the case because they said there was no evidence against him. And they said, the to the door a free man of the court. That day he was rearrested. In charge of possession of a gun, and was a holding charge just to get him back into court again. Again, what they did do was to put together a grand jury. I never heard of before from from over a hundred years previously. The grand jury to reindict Gusty Spence, 
and bring them back in the case again. It's made, it's made the thing more politicized than what it was eventually. Uh, it, it, it's ironic that, that, that was the year I was married, and believe it or not, because these trials started the 3rd of October, the very same day I got married, so half the family was in court, and they were half of my wedding. That was actually because he suggested that anyway. He said, carry on with it. And the wife said, I'm not worrying because he's been some money on the head. So there you are. You know, that, was a, that seemed to be a happy day and a, and a sad day at the same time. Uh, the troubles come on from the end. You may as well say from 68, obviously, you had the civil rights and people's democracy. Uh, and, and the upsetting and rest that was going on. 69 was actually possibly the worst year in 15th of August when it really, really started. At that time, Joni Sublet with six Protestants or six loyalists in Crown Road Jail. And as time went on, uh, after 69, really got worse and worse. But because he was there in 1966, the family looked after his wants and his needs, uh, what they could be left in to, to let him uh, have more comfort than what it was in the jail. In the, in the 70s, the early 70s, it got worse, I think, one time with 12 in, uh, initially. Uh, and as such, Gusty asked us to help out what we could possibly do. What we did do in the late, just after 70, what we did do was to take what we refer back to in 60, 62. Uh, and we, as a small group, got together and set up a table on the Shankill Road and done the same thing we did in 62, was to ask people to rededicate themselves to the covenant. At the same time, we asked them to make a donation and the collection box and they got a wee sample back again, like a copy of cabinet from shelves to keep. And that was with Michelle, you've got some funds to hand in uh, to, what, to what the number of uh, prisoners who were coming in, in order to say. And it got larger and larger until about 15 or 16. Uh, and out of that, the Lords got together and they said to yourselves, we, we need a bigger group to, you know, to, to look after this. We sat one day in, in the jail with Gusty on a, on a visit and so I couldn't reserve the guy as a group. This time had a few bob to get on, about two or three hundred quid. And uh, what we were allowed to do then was to leave in, perhaps, speaking to the governor, I think it was about a pound to each prisoner at a time, a week, uh, into their personal account to buy whatever so, so small things they could purchase in the jail. We sat in this visit with Gusty one Saturday morning in the autumn of 71. And said, we're going to put ourselves together in that group on what we call ourselves. So we stopped and thought what we could call ourselves. The Red Cross was obviously an international group at the time well known. The IRA and the public movement had their own Green Cross, and there was a Blue Cross group that uh, looked after animals. So it was, <laughs> it was a problem in the end, it was just said as well as the Orange Cross, and that's how they really got the name that, that morning in, uh, in Cromwell, Geo Augusta. And that was, a, that was the start of the Orange Cross. Was, at the time, there was five of us. It was my father and myself. Uh, um, there was a chap came along when we were at that store, and they said, we man called Bobby Whitten in York Street. Bobby had collected a couple of shillings on me, but he had done down in some pubs down about York Street area, and he brought the money up, and they asked him to join us. That made us three. There was an oral fellow from the Shankle, done the same thing. Bobby Close, and that made us four. Uh, another man below was Big Jackie Campbell, Come alongside as a bit of a chairman, I was secretary and treasurer. Uh, and then 
with my subs got to got an extra one of the shoot kit, cancer shoot kit at the time because we put it all together, all together so as a facially recognised uh, councillor. We're going to set something up to like a stall or something to do with 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 uh, collecting money or saving or selling. Uh, we had it out officially, and she was the man who got us a license from the city council. Then the old corporation was got us a trader's license. I think it was twelve and six or something at the time, and that set us up officially. And really, that was the start of the Orange Cross. So thinking about you know you talk about. 1966 and Gusty being arrested and tried. Could you talk about that period between 66 and 1970? What, what was the campaigning like at that stage on behalf of Gusty? Well, as I said earlier, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, whole, the whole sequence of events regarding Gusty's fans was, was uh, uh, so politically, and it was so obviously politically motivated, uh, particularly by Terence O'Neill. What you have to realise, in 1962, uh, Westville Foss and Pure Election, Jim Colfetter had defeated Jerry Fitt. I'd never heard of it before, Foss and Unist in, in, in that quadrant. 1966 was an old snap election call, and this time Jerry Fitt, Jim Jerry Fitt defeated, uh, as, and this was a direct, this was a direct, uh, Opponent really as such, there's only two up that time, it's Junkle Farrer and Jerry Fitt. Jerry Fitt got in and he overturned the election with something like 8,000 votes compared to 1862. Now, because he had worked in the post office previously and he was approached by a person who also worked there, a niceness fellow, and told him that the official government poll cards had been sent directly uh, from the post office, which was there on the Clermont Street behind the old. Royal Avenue Post Office sent directly to the Hibernians Hall in the Falls Road upstairs room, and that's where the persecution was going to be held and undertaken. Uh, so the day after the election, Gustin and Cook Group of fellows, on the, on the advice uh, of the, the original fellow who told them where, the, where this would be, where to get the key for it, was actually a fruit shop below the, below the, uh, these. Uh, the Havanians Hall. So Gusty went on the pretext that Jerry Fitt had sent him, got the key, went up the stairs, photographed all the, all the various clothing of trousers, coats, wigs, hats, you name it, all there, along with a pile of official government poll cards. Now they took photographs and all of it, Polaroid photographs, and that time there's no negative, so there's no photographs, instant photographs, Polaroid. After left, Straight down the through my father, straight down the headquarters to Jim Bailey, who was the secretary in his part at the time. Gave him all the evidence. The police were called. Now, there are politicians, some of who are still alive, the way in the House of Lords were there and seen it and revealed a new of it. The police took all the evidence away, so therefore there must be a file somewhere in the archives of the, well, it's the old REC archives or whether it's the, 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 the Easterners in Northern Ireland archives somewhere. But there must be a file there. If someone wants to investigate a journalist to go and have a look and try and get that file to show that proof is there. Anyway, unfortunately, after then, Gussie's Banks was arrested. But he was going to be also the chief uh, witness against Jerry Fitt, had it been the whole thing, had it been, excuse me, uh, uh, a lateral court being called to give evidence against Jerry Fitt. 
At the same time, there was a conspiracy going on to unseat O'Neill as Prime Minister. We believed at the time, the family believed at the time, that O'Neill saw an opportunity here when Gussie's parents was arrested. Therefore, the case against Jerry Fett would fall apart. And in fact, when Gussie began to interrogate it, and it was interrogation by the, by the RDC special branch, they actually mentioned in their interrogation that Gussie was going to be a witness against Jerry Fett in the electoral court. So all that fell apart because Gussie was arrested. And it was an opportune, an opportune moment then to do what they had to do to get Gussie's parents put away. And if, if, again, if you go back, if anybody had, could go back in and look at all, at all the evidence given by the other two co-accused, you see it every time it's mentioned, it's always Gusty Spence, Gusty Spence, Gusty Spence, uh, and, and, and all the evidence that they gave. And in fact, all the evidence they gave weren't actually placed. So he wrote, wrote the evidence, wrote the statements, and then asked them to sign them. So in 66, then right through the whole lot, the campaign was always there for Gusty Spence. We, we went, you know, obviously the other two prisoners were there, and it was up there for me, they wanted to do for them. We did what we wanted to do for our fellow member. And we ran a campaign for, uh, the release of Gusty Spence. Uh, we had plenty of, uh, plenty of support from, from various politicians who would, who would, who would say, yes, well, red letters would have you, but that's as far as it went. That's as far as it would go. We wouldn't go anywhere for it. It would sort of be associated too much with it. Uh, but the campaign, for as far as we've been sermon on for Duncan's years, we had signatories, something like the 60 or 70,000 signatories uh, of a petition to go to, to Down Street, which, 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 sorry, not Down Street, Stormley, which did do at the time. But again, it was all ignored. Uh, if you look at the trial, and all was said in the trial, the appeal was turned down, obviously, uh, because this was in order part of the politicization of the, of the, of, of the case against Rossi Spence. And, and if you look at the evidence in the appeal and the subsequently what the, the three judges said in the appeal, it turned down Rossi Spence, uh, not on the fact that it was proven beyond reasonable doubt. It was proven that there are, there are subjects, there are summing up. Actually said that Gussie Spence, in all probability, a probability meant that if, if, if you were, which was then, if you were with, with a certain person during the day up to a certain time, the attitude would be there's an all probability then you were still with them three or four hours later. So take those words into consideration. Not beyond reasonable doubt was Gussie Spence proven, but in probability. And that's in the, the appeal. Now, when we went again, the family went again. And asked them to appeal to House of Lords, it was refused. Now, why was it refused? Why was it refused? The House of Lords. The highest court in the land, and you see today that everybody who can't, who's refusing to coach you and I are going to a House Court of Law, it's the House Appeal or Supreme Court, because these pencils refused to allow him to go forward for, for three or four years. And something else we are in 69, after, you know, uh, What, what I would say is, what, what we're talking about here is a different narrative than what it usually came to Gossie. I mean, people will hear the story of that night and hear the story of, of what Gossie became and take it that, that, that from, from the early days he was number one, but 
the story that we're getting from you is an entirely different story of where Dusty was singled out for special attention because he highlighted something that was rotten at the core. Now, we're, we're held for that at the minute for people who want to go and be whistleblowers and who want to out corruption within the system. I mean, this is a perfect example of, of somebody who was singled out, made a political scapegoat and made an example of, and it has reaching human effects, you know, what would Gussie's path been had that not happened? You know, it's it, it's one of those questions. And I think what we're saying now is it's a more, more human side of Gussie because we're getting the family connection. He wasn't just Gussie Spence. He was a brother, he was a father, he was a grandfather, he, he, was, he was a human being. And I think that's important that we do that. We, we give people the full picture of what Gussie was. Um, after, after the, the, the opinion, is, is thrown out, and uh, he's not even going any further. I mean, how did Gussie take that himself? Well, uh, in, in the book was written, and that by Gussie was written, uh, and Gussie sort of mem- 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 memoirs. Uh, Roy Garland actually said to him about it, he said that the, the days and weeks and, and months after, while well, in the cell, it was all about. You know, this whole trial was all about it. It, it was he it, it, he slapped it, he so and so so, and he read the whole thing through. At the end of the day, he, he, he not say accepted it, but he accepted that he was there. He had to fight it, and he thought if if he, he, he done everything he could, and within his own right and what he's entitled to do, uh, by hunger strikes to try and highlight uh, his whole case right through to. To the one day, one, one hunger strike lasted, I think, was 33 days. Uh, he said in, to Roy Garland, uh, when he was researching the book, he said to Roy Garland, you know, they can do what they want. I was looked in my eyes on a lot of things, but I was never charged with things I'd done. And yet they charged me with that one of, of young Peter Ward. And to, from that day, right to his deathbed, I stood beside him two days before he died. And when a minister came out, a, a, a canon uh, from local Parish in Bangor and asked him to, to, to uh, confess to you or, or uh, want to get off his chest. And he said he had nothing, he had nothing whatsoever uh, to do uh, in the killing of young Peter Ward. And therefore he had nothing to, to confess to right that day. But he did say he was, he was, he was charged with that, but never charged with a lot of other things he was up to his eyes in. Uh, it convinced us during the trial. And again, if anyone goes back, and I know it's, it's, you know, it's 56 years ago, but if anyone goes back and has a look at the papers, and they're still in the archives of the, of the, the courts here, and reads them, any layman, not even anybody who has a legal, a legal background, any layman looking at those statements from his court cues and looking at the way the trial was actually conducted, even even with George Gossie's interrogation, uh, he, he wrote something like 32 pages when he, he was, uh, after he went back into the sales, of how he was, how he was treated by interrogators. At one stage, one even pulled a gun out on him and pointed to a hole in the wall and said, we'd actually miss one time, I'm not going to miss you, uh, to, get her, to get him to confess, which he didn't confess anything, obviously. But it never... It was never aging. There was never any any factual evidence against Gusty Spence. Guns were never put, never found, and 
It's never mentioned in court why they didn't pursue to try and find a weapons concern. Of course, he attended three three uh, lineups in the jail, and not once was he picked out by the, 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 the survivors of that attack. Only when he went into the dock that one of the one of the, uh, the the witnesses who was involved that night, who was shot at, pointed him out and asked why he was appointed in the jail. Uh, and he said he was afraid. Yet, because his uh, counsel said to them, you know, they were, they were inside the wall who were coming with jail. There was police officers there, there was prison officers there, uh, all the security wanted, and you were afraid. Yet here we are in open court. I mean, there, there's an example of just how, that, you know, we, we do know that, that where he was in the dock, that the witnesses were actually told where he was sitting in the dock, so the point of out. But there's the sort of things that was there. There's no evidence. Ghost even said, well, I want to take squads of his hands. He didn't want to take squads of his hands. And for what reason? But all those things that were there was, was sort of personally uh, uh, politicized. Get the words fixed up. Politicized his trial, right down to the line. But anyone who's any semblance of, of legal uh, knowledge at all, even without legal knowledge, to look at the whole trial papers would know of a full well that that trial was a complete setup. Lord Russell Liverpool actually said, and he was one of the he was one of the advocates who sat on the uh, Nuremberg trials, called it a travesty of justice. The whole trial. So, so thinking at that stage, you talk about the the um, campaign and you know the family approached politicians, local politicians, and your dad was. Obviously, heavily involved with the Unionist Party at that at that time, did, did he feel personally let down by the Unionist Party or the politicians, or, or was there any rancor towards politicians at that stage, or feeling that they weren't doing enough for us? At that time, I think what happened was that some of the politicians who Madame well up with were part of the conspiracy to unseat and unseat only. Uh, and, and therefore didn't want to be associated or, or with, 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 with Gosti Spaz at the time. So because of that, uh, they sort of backed out, you know, they, yet they were part and parcel of that conspiracy, as I said, who were trying to upset only. Uh, and were actually, perhaps at the end of the day, they did, they did finish up, they didn't see them eventually, but didn't want to be associated because it was a murder involved in it. And that was it. That felt very sad about it, very hard about the whole lot. Uh, in fact, my dad had been nominated for a, for a Justice of Peace, uh, and he had sat, my dad actually refused him because of, at the time. But he, he, the only one I can say who was really, really more than interested and more helpful and wanted to be the forefront was the late, the late Dr. Laird. He was a, a very helpful to, to the family at the time. Uh, and the one at the time, because he was in hunger strike, the, the very last one, the last one before he came off hunger strike, almost 33 days. And uh, my dad got word from the jail that they wanted somebody up because they thought it was, he, he was on his way out. He was on his deathbed. And, and my dad asked, said to me, you were going up. And he asked Dr. Laird, who was, he had a practice in Governor Road, and, and he, and he ever, of course, he was, because he was in the corner for him, to go up to jail that day, that night, a sunny night, I'll never forget it. 
So my dad, myself and Dr. Laird uh, went up to the jail. They got there, who was a very humane person, excuse me, uh, sat and told us all was all happening. Why? Because he was, excuse me, on the, on the, on the hunger strike. Uh, and in fact, now he was in the hospital and very poorly. And he, he had a, he wanted us to get him off the hunger strike. Otherwise, he, he, he would have been, he would have, he'd have passed away. So they gave us permission to go down, and they couldn't take us through the, obviously through the, through the blocks. Uh, so I had to go up the whole way around the inside of the perimeter, well, inside the perimeter wall, right around the whole jail grounds to, to where the hospital block was. And then we went into the door, and then you could smell the, the stench of, of death. Uh, so I got to step. And obviously, and my dad brought a message that McGonnie, his mother, uh, wanted to come off it because, you know, she didn't want her son to die. And we played it with him. And obviously, you know, he, he was determined to go to the end to prove his, prove his innocence. Uh, and eventually, the pleading from my dad that his mother wanted him off it, otherwise, it would possibly kill her too. That uh, he, 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 he liked me and said, okay. Uh, but Dr. Laird promised that he only could in his power to, you know, to hide his case to such a degree that they try and get a retrial or some sort of rethink about the whole sentence upon him because of the evidence was, was, was tainted. Uh, and that was the stage you know, that it came up the hunger strike. But that dumb isn't very badly, obviously, medically because of it. We went back into the, to the governor and the members of the governor's, the governor's desk, and my father said to him, you know, it was having a gust and he was determined because of the way he was treating the trial. And uh, the governor said, but, uh, you know, he, 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 he thought my desk one day, one time. I've never heard it before of, of someone thought my desk. And uh, my dad said, well, he was a determined man, and obviously he, he was suicide to see determinations what the governor would be to him, and he's not going to be treated him. Like I think a guinea pig or a dog, he was, he was a person. And uh, he would come off hunger strike, okay. But he wasn't going to do any work. He wasn't going to be treated as an ordinary prisoner. So as she's concerned, he's a prisoner of war. And they, uh, they agreed down there that he wouldn't, he would have to go into the, into the, the, the prison, uh, the workshop, the tailor shop was a time. But he wouldn't do any work. He would go in because obviously uh, it was a sort of, you know, um, Proton, 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 proton. Uh, the the gun would he would go into the workshop, but do no work, but because I had a scene with him to be doing something at least, uh, and I respected that he, he respected the, the, the jail the jail rules, but because he never done any work in, in, in the prison shop. But as I say that only he, he treated himself as a prisoner of war. And what he tried to do then was he, he, he didn't want to refuse to do it by the prison guard because at that time he'd sentence you, you couldn't wear own clothes. So he used to paint POW on the prison clothes. Uh, it was still on tipax, I think, at the time. And then one day he got a bit of some sort of paint out of the workshops and made it bigger. So every time he did it, they took it off, they took the clothes off and gave a new set. <clears throat> and we were going to charge him with destroying uh, prison, uh, prisoners' hair. But he's still determined to put prisoner world and that's the way it was. But at the time, we go, we go back into to where we are in 71, and that was the formation of his cross. So the more we wanted then, we wanted to, to, to uh, move them for prisoner war status. 
This time, the, the influx of prisoners on, of loyalist prisoners was something in the 40s, number 40s. The influx of political prisoners, both the, the, the provisionals and the official IRA, uh, had really increased to such a stage it was, it was just overcome. And then there was obviously there was always confrontations and fights and what have you. So Gusty got together with the, uh, William Key, who was the, the leader of the provisional IRA. And I thought I think it was Monaghan, you call him, who was a leader of the, 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 the officials. And obviously to, to prevent any foot attacks and what have you, competition. They made a sort of pact that the, uh, the new sectarian and blue stuff. At the same time, they approached the, the governor and the prison authorities into sort of big segregation. Because most of them were actually at, uh, sent prisoners at that time were all in, in AWIM of the jail. So the, the, the way they segregated them was that the loyalist prison would be on the, on the top floor of the, the, the A-wing, and then the Republican prison would be on the, on the, 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 the lower two floors of, of the second floor and the first floor. It was actually better for the loyalist prisoners because they, ended up, they were very tough and the text, and like a hot water all couldn't be thrown over the bodies down onto the end bay below. So they had that, that sort of wee bit of safety at least up there. But the, uh, part of that pact was that that prisoner of war status, some people may think that, you know, when you get three sets of prisoners of, of, of a different hue, uh, push the guy against the one government, uh, official, uh, authority, why they would get together for that. But again, it's, it's when you're in behind, uh, or, or, or the wall, you know, it's all about surviving. Uh, I worked at the time with a fellow, called him Stuart, Billy Stewart, and he was actually interned uh, during the Second World War, officially uh, arrived when he was, and they were actually pushed at the time for, for political status, and he, he, of he had asked me, he asked him how they went about getting this sort of thing, and Liam knew how it was, of course, and he gave me a bit of insight, and the time I, I passed it on to Gusty and, and whatever Republican prisoners, they sort of got whatever insight they could of political prisoners. But the, uh, together we all pushed for it, and that was when about early 1972, at the time, and we weren't going to give concessions. Uh, at that time, the Orange Cross had been established, and we had we were good insight and, and, and well uh, information, and really we got into, to, with, with good relationships with the authorities and the, and the prison authorities and, and the government authorities, who recognises as a, a welfare body at the time. They weren't really going to get into, into, uh, given political status because they couldn't recognize that because at the time the, the British government said there was no war on here. We got a conflict, but there was no war. And this Saturday night, uh, a letter came out, secretly sneaked out, and I was asked to take it into the newsletter, <coughs> signed by what the, the, the Lord's prisoners who were there at that time. Saying that we're going to strike a blow for the game political status, uh, and, and give the newsletter a sort of story for it. They had a newsletter after at the time and didn't want to know anything about it. I thought it was just an order, an order of love and publicity for, for the prisoners in, in the jail. And that's Saturday night, they sprung the gate, the doors of the cells. Now, I don't know how they did it. I've never prisoned cells, thank God. Uh, how they sprung the gate, the, 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 the hinges, I do not know. Whereas they put something into it and then closed it heavily and, and busted the hinges. But that went ahead. 
Uh, it was during that time that the IRA had, had met with uh, the Secretary of State, Willie Wakelock, and they put forward things like political status as well. That was one of their, one of their demands. As they got out released in at the, the, the last Saturday in June for his daughter's wedding, uh, daughter's wedding that morning, he got released that morning uh, overnight for two days. We all know what happened after that, and I'm not going to that. Uh, he, he was later charged when he was was so rearrested. He was later charged of being uh, in in unlawful custody, which was was obvious, of course. But during that time, in uh, the government relinquished themselves, or relinquished, and granted they wouldn't get a political status, but they did what they call special category status, which meant then they could, at a certain degree of, of latitude, they could wear their own clothes or write parcels, what have you. And it was part and parcel, what was part of the thing that George Cross had been helping to push for, and we, we take a bit of pride in doing that as well. But after he was arrested in October that same year, and he was never brought back to criminal jail, they moved along catch. I remember seeing my dad after, because we had catch him, take him back to Common Road to be with his, his own men. Uh, and after two or three months, and I remember seeing my dad, they're not going to take him back. There's something happening here. And one Sunday morning, all I heard was helicopters, what have you, and movement of this, that, the other thing. And the whole Common Road was all cordoned off. And I'd say to my dad, I think I'm actually going to take everybody else along case and keep, and then take him down to see because he is. And that's what happened. Like it was a mass, a mass exodus of, of, of moving prisoners from Clomo Jail down to, to, uh, Long Case that, that overnight on that, uh, it was just before Christmas in 1972. So can, can you talk a wee bit about the, the actual Orange Cross and how you set up, you know, during this period, how you set up the stall and started selling the newspaper, printed the newspaper and, and, and that type of thing, how you publicized the organization? Well, officially, after we take that name, it was around about October, November, nineteen seventy-one, uh, and after those sell those we sort of cabinets, we, we, we thought it was a good idea. What a, but the only way we, we could do it was actually what we had was a a new a, 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 a to make a stall was it was actually a, a piercing board. Well, the wallpaper piercing boards, we actually took it and put a new tack over it and had it outside the Ulster Bank and the Shanker Road. And and all we done at the time was to sell the orange, not the orange cross paper. At the time was the largest news, the WDA news, and various organs, the Protestant Telegraph. And most of those were donated free by the by the people concerned who published them. Which was allowed to sell them. What we did do is just spread them across that union jack and put a, a a curtain got across and keep them down from the, the wind. And at that rain, we just put a plastic pack over them. And what we had was a, a, just a collection box. Uh, and I started to, was to, to explain to people what we're about. But it was for loaded prisoners and, and trying to give converts for them and trying to help families and what have you. And was obviously families don't want to take it, say they came second, but they were second primarily protecting the prisoners themselves to bring converts. So that's what we had is a story like that. Nothing else really as such. Uh, and then we developed into uh, like a newspaper store you see you used to see down the town, like a triangle thing with, with, with compartments to put different papers in. 
Det har vi ikke bukket med for at pleje det. Det er skidt for det gør. Men det var det. Og vi tabte til de ældste bank og en særlig afternoon, probably 3 out of 5 o'clock. And that was the six-person six mansion order regarding it. Uh, during that period, I think it was uh, 73 other bridge, that the IRA then blew up the standard bar, which was across the road from Agnes Street on the Shanker Road. Uh, and after the site was cleared and made safe, we moved across to there. But we want to try and develop a wee bit, because during the winter, uh, we don't have any straw, we don't cover nothing. And we had a fellow who we worked along with my dad. Let's uh, say where he worked, we worked along with my dad. And he was the owner. And he put together a, a stall, like a, like a food stall for us, which gives a bit of cover. Uh, and we, we actually moved that across onto the side of the street. It was a, it was a really heavy bugger too. In fact, the first time I actually took it down the, down the, the, the footpath, the weight group on us. Because only heavy plastic wheels, and he had, was, had a job getting a background to the old artist club that were restored it. So subsequently, got our good set of industrial wheels onto it. That was it. But that was a storm we had. And we came to the blue, we dug out a course with, with, with red and white, and uh, we, we thought up all these, these slogans and names we had. We had, well, obviously, had new ones cross. Uh, their cause is our cause. Uh, their only crime is loyalty. Uh, and uh, one was to say to provide comforts for all his prisoners and that attracted it, it really did attract an awful lot of people to us and for four or five years after that we were actually uh, going well going well regarding uh, making, uh, gaining funds for, for prisoners and working with them. that time that all moved along case there yeah. uh, and numbers had increased you know, fantastically for want a better word By having their own clothes and by having sort of uh, their own associations, then what they wanted was various things. Some of the things they asked for when, when, when they would come to jail, that's what I asked for, but we would have made a bit, bit more comfortable with like radios and what have you. That was no problem. I got concise from the government to, to leave radios in. Uh, one time they wanted uh, uh, a recording device, a tape recording device, they would find a tape recording device. Uh, and obviously they weren't going to let it in, but what we did say was to, to learn German. They weren't the one to learn German for that. I haven't, I haven't a clue. So I skirted, skirted the town, uh, and got these tapes of how, how to learn German. Uh, and that was a condition to that it was into. You couldn't record on them. You, you, either someone wanted us to go to escape with Germany or something. But anyway, uh, we got the tapes in, and one of the, one of, the, one of the fellows who was in there was able to adapt the, the, the tape recorder, which was obviously his name, to record. And we recorded all the various sights and sounds of what happened along in, in Crumlin with Jail. And, you know, and some of the tips were sneaked out uh, by a good piece of some of the, the sort of waters. Uh, you hear the sounds and signs and everything else associated with, 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 with the jail. Uh, unfortunately, those tapes were, were, would have been uh, historical value, uh, if nothing else. But, but in really one of the houses that brought it was still so where they are now, I wouldn't have no clue. But that was one of the things I got in. Another thing you asked for, up and coming, would you have a six before snooker table? And how you're going to translate that in? But again, 
And you know, the good places of, 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 of a, a sympathetic order. And they come at a certain time, we got it in three trains through the front door. Well, it's right through the side door, I think, at the, the Omira Hospital. But some of the things that I'll say that I'm just, you have thought of possibility, but impossibilities can be overcome. It's the miracles that take a bit longer. Mm-hmm. A, a bit of humour, I should say, before we move on to anything else, a bit of humour that, uh, my grandmother, Gussie's mother, lived in 66, she was a state route. We, we lived in 50 down, down the street from her. But one of the days when, 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 uh, it got out that we were, what we were all about, the Orange Cross was all about, uh, uh, two chaps turned up in a lorry one day and just brought a big, big bag. Uh, it was all full of shag tobacco. And she had just stopped at, at the granny front door and she said, Mrs. Benson, that's because they, uh, and drove away. Uh, we, we actually, we funny enough, we got a, a, a big, uh, one of the old fashioned bins and put it in the, in, in the bin, in the bag, of course, still. And I got my granny's back room and, you know, the only way to keep it soft was to put in, uh, old, um, some said, some people said potatoes and some others told us apples and what have you. So we tried everything to keep it fresh. And of course, when again, the word getting out about it, some of the good hostly, the hostly owners of the nearby gave us bottles of brandy and bottles of old cheap wine, which happened. So it was a good smell, you so street. But to get what I was going to say about it was, uh, we, we, we got the permission then to leave in these small bags of tobacco teas to prisoners every week. Someone didn't smoke, but they still got a pack of to- a certain set of tobacco bag and handed over to the other chaps who did smoke. But one of the guys was standing at the stall and one of the prisoners waves come over and, and said to my dad, well, I, I, I don't know how you do it, but, but thanks for very good, you know, thanks to God for getting the tobacco into the husband and the boy. He said, I don't know how you do it. And my dad says to him, well, Gene, he said, you see that way on the way it runs up at the back of landscape terrace? Well, every Saturday morning, we go up there as a brick in the wall and we take it out and put the bags in there. And we go see the boys around and the exercise you in your, in your end. They take your brick out and put the hands through and pull the tobacco in. Then we put the brick back in again for next week too. So let us do the same thing again. And Jane accepted that and she says, Billy, my dad says to her, hey, Jane, don't be telling me about your secret. She says, Billy, your secret's here for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think today she died. She still believe we had to <laughs> But there was always a bit of humour with, with some of the sadness and some of the, some of the serious things that was going on. But anyway, they moved down to the, the long case and, and we were in various compounds in long case over the, over the, over the years or so. It was compound 12, 18, 19 and 21. But uh, again, some of the things they asked for, the lads asked for, uh, were how we ever got around to getting them in, we never know. But one of the times we tried to put together a sort of uniform uh, within the compounds, and, and, and of course they wanted to get us, they call it uh, comforter hats. So we got those in, and the government realised then that, that was, they were part of a uniform, so they stopped those. So it's also saying to get us black wool and knitting needles, so that and black wool and knitting needles, and they made their own. And, they, and then the authorities realised again that black wool and knitting needles. Oh, this is part of the uniform, get that together. So stop that. So of course he said, well, leave in six inch nails as part of, a part of the handicraft. So that then six inch nails. And then they let them themselves in the six inch nails. And then stop the black wool. So we asked him to leave us in, David in black dye and white wool. <laughs> and we left that in. 
and, and another you know, scene obviously what happened. So they stopped the white wood, and what they did, it was actually unraveled all the blankets and the and various sort of uh, bedroom equipment and, uh, and, and stripped all the wood of that and done it again. Know, so whatever they put against it, you know, they got the, it's like an albatross, you know, yeah. Whatever they did do, he said, well, whatever they do, we'll do it, but we'll, we'll put something else on. Uh, part of the parcels they had, you relate to uh, uh, two cigars, I think, or some sort of cigars. So when, when some of the people had gone across the screen for holidays, uh, they brought back all these massive big cigars. Did you see that? Like, all these cigars. And they left them in. So then the government come back and said to stop those. She's not allowed those. Well, why not? She had you know, two cigars. Well, they had to start her cigars. Okay, that's right. So that, that's what it was. You know, the way we learned things was it is it is word. It's just, so they wanted the, the uniform again. They wanted uh, sparrows. I didn't know what sparrows were. But sparrows were these studs that put in their boots for, you know, clickety clack when they went on the parade ground. So it was, it was a place in Church Lane. A church, I, I was church lane down to get them. So I went in with two plastic bags or something like that and ordered these, these sparables. And I followed me with about two dollars sparables. I don't know how you must have thought I was a bit of a header <laughs> with two plastic bags, but we got them eventually and they were left then. And the, uh, then the, the, the one that the UVF badges made, one for the hat and one for the, um, one for their belts. So we got those, and we actually ordered those from a place in Liverpool, and got the first size. And were, but you, obviously, you couldn't leave them in. I didn't want to leave them in. So the families all got they all got two each, and they were sort of well worn. That they were, were were getting these uh, these badges, and they would obviously get them in. How they got them in up themselves, but the families had to get them in anyway. But some of some of the ladies must have knew they were coming, and my mother had to post a couple of them down to their homes. Uh, one lady in Lauren, a family, she did what it was. So she said she sent for the army, and the army blew them up. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, one other lady left the parcel, and, and, and she put the badges and said the baps, and obviously we're caught in the baps. But we got them on a bench side. And then the one that then the buckles form. So we had to get buckles made with two holes where the badges fit in, and we got those in. But then I finished up with a full set of uniforms uh, on parade ground. But it's like anything else, you know, because he was said it when he was there, no matter what the, what the constraints they put in your way, we'll overcome it. What do they do? We can do it better. You know, when, when, when we used to go down for visits, because they'd come down, I'm only speaking of course, of course, when a lot of fellows done the same thing, they never had the hair shaved or the long hair or what have you, because every time you went to, at your, at the compound, they had to take your photograph, as far as I understand, uh, to see you, you know, recognize who you were. So not every time we take we've taken photos go over because one time you had them down with a full set uh, of her of facial hair, and next time you got down it was short, and the next time you had no facial hair or you had long locks. So everything they done was always that. And then one of the, the governor sent for Gusty, uh, and I said to him uh, during the meeting, uh, you know, who gave you permission to go up here? He said, God did the day I was born. <laughs> and I think he just said, just get out and come back. <laughs> but those are sort of humorous parts of the thing, and a more serious and, and dire situation.
But that was the demands caused it by whatever they asked for. I don't mean it's a man or anything, whatever they asked for, a bit of a request I had. We would do our best to, sort of, to fulfill that, that request. And I think we did. Uh, I started to count up when I was putting things together, not so long ago. And in, in, the, in the six or seven, maybe eight years that the Orange Cross was going, uh, we, we put in roughly about £250,000 uh, in kind and in money. Um, a lot of through the seals of handicrafts, which was, was a fair amount. And, and in this day and age, I think it's not very much, but uh, I, I went to have a look. When I put when I tried to equate £250,000 back in the 1970s with today's figure, it equates to something like £2.5 million, which, which wasn't a bad figure when you think about it. It's some feet, absolutely some feet for a, uh, well, I guess to be a community group together that kind of cash together. Um, and without serious backing, you know, that, that money came from within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is that is something needs to be commended. Um, there's plenty of families who benefited from that. And uh, plenty of families who had a bit of respite knowing that the Orange Cross were there helping their families. Um, yeah, it's, it's a journey that we, we actually need to do a second poll, that's because I'm looking at the time going, we're not even scratching the surface here. I mean, there's so much in, that I still need to ask, and Gareth wants to ask, and we're getting close to the R mark. So, poll number two, it is coming, so just prepare yourself because this, it's just an absolute goldmine of information. And especially when you're talking about gossip being on, on Hunger Strike, that's another subject that we, we have on our list of covers as well as Hunger Strike. Yeah, it's absolutely. just something we forgot about that they actually did this. People, people just assume that Lloyd went in the jail and and say that they play off the narrative, they're all bodybuilders and taking steroids and watching corn. What? They're dedicated men at that point. And for, no matter how you think of, of these men, and the same goes for professionals, and no matter what you think of the men and how they got there, they held their convictions close to the heart and they were willing to see it out. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think pod number two is a definite. Um, and Gareth, at least one more question for you. We'll, we'll see this one off with. But yeah, just. just, well, just, just I just before I know I know principally the, the Orange Cross was actually to prevent the convicts for for the Lord's prison and that was obviously our number one priority. But we did you know we didn't forget about the families, obviously because we we, we took into account the Christmas would have been our own Christmas parties it was it was, a, it was trips to the seaside and uh, various sort of things regarding the families and, and the children in particular. Uh, I should give a good a, a mention to dear Scottish Brown in this respect because um, unfortunately one one of the main uh, in fact the main, the main person who, who, who was instrumental in putting together passed away just over a year ago uh, Peter Downey uh, they didn't in early in just with the Orange Halls or there was uh, they, they, they started a, a thing called an Ulster Fund uh, and, and we got to know them obviously through the Orange Circles and got we friends with them and, and, and roughly during the period the Orange Cross was running, between 73 74 particularly, they took across, or we took across with them and had that with them, something like 250 uh, 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 women and children and, and, and grandparents and what have you of the president's cells. And those, those, those group of people over in Scotland, they paid for everything, you know, what we done with them, without the Black Taxi Association here. We they ferried the, the, the families that was usually about ten or twelve every Saturday down to the boat. Um, obviously, it was paid for. On the other side, the Scottish people picked them up, took them 
capital their homes for a week to come on the sort of sites and, 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 and around that area and on the, the house you want to see and, and visit and also give them sort of patent money. Uh, and that went on for the, you know, throughout the whole summer period for, for two, three years and done that. And that was, it was a very considerable amount of money was, was actually put together that also funds. So I must give credence to the Scottish, uh, Orange Brother and their families, uh, who helped very, very much during that period and I worked closely with the Orange Cross. And they were very concerned. I said, Black Taxi, the boat company was, was willing to, to let us have uh, a bit of credit to get ourselves uh, the money from Scotland to pay up. And then that, this, that was an order. Uh, thank you to them too. So a lot of people pulled their weight and helped out uh, because it was a very trying time, a very sad time for everyone, uh, those in the middle of it. That was really the height of the trouble when they went to 72, 75 mark. So I want to get that for them. Absolutely. Just, just to round off, and we will want to follow up with this because there's lots of things to dig into. There's lots of aspects that we want to elaborate on, so we could do, do a follow-up. But for me, the, the, the question I'd like to ask, just to round things off, just over a year ago you wrote a book based on the Orange Cross. What, what brought that about and why did you think it was the time to, to do that? Well, uh, <laughs> funny way it all come about. Uh, uh, your mate Bino asked me to do in contact with what, what I do but uh, part of the, the Bully Mac we were, we're doing a series of of, uh, of DVDs or, or, or broadcasts uh, over the summer period and I said we were talking about the Orange Cross and I said, uh, looking at the force I said I'll uh, have to think about it because I had nothing written, ever written down everything was on my head and, and I I'm really the only one left who was involved dealing with the Orange Cross. This is during COVID lockdown, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, but he asked me actually early to 2019, and I said, so I just said yes, and I was waiting then for the gentleman wanted to come and do the broadcast, and then COVID set in, so everything sort of went on lockdown, really. And after I thought about it, I said, I'm set with all over my head, I've never put on black and white. Uh, you know, what I do about it. So I just said, I'll, I'll put it together. So I just sat and wrote this and wrote that and wrote that and then sort of collated it together into what, what was this, this 40 page booklet. And thankfully, I was able to get a grant for the print about 250 booklets. And obviously, we're all honored out on, on a couple of presentations and given out to people who were there. And, and, and oh yeah, that was it. But I, I, that's, I, that was the consequence of, of, of being asked to do it for the volume bag and, and not have that prepared as such. As I said, I'd better do it because at the end of the day, well, you know, once I take a pocket, <laughs> you know, something like that, there's nothing to put down black and white and I have it. As I said, this, that's all I got was about 250, 300 books and they're all gone now. But I, I, I do have it on, on, uh, on, on file. Uh, I can have a PDF file. Uh, if, if anyone wants to have a contact with Southgarth or Sam um, and yeah. give me their email address, I'd sorry send a copy onto it. For other people who are interested in looking at copies of the Orange Cross, you deposited the entire pack. Well, not long really to the public record office. Well, no, we, there was one or two, you know, we, we, maybe perhaps in the second part about the paper, we'll come out and speak with the paper, but there was one we we had done our own magazine every fortnight. When you see, and it was uh, 102 copies of it. Through yourself, I think, as you know, the first one she asked me to, to loan them to you and, and had capital one. Uh, 
so the Cranley was, was many of our researchers were asked about it and, and you know, obviously they were gonna they were using it they were, they were maybe taking two or three two or three weeks, maybe months to, to take out what research one out of the BBC actually got him up as well during a programme for the for the twenty fifth anniversary of the ceasefire. Uh and well it's with yourself and down in down in the, the record office. Uh, you were doing a presentation uh and you'll see myself I had him with me there and then what I will do to help everybody, although it's analogue with the public record office. And now there I don't know if the public record office if anyone wants to to go into and to do any research with the, with the copies of the of the, the magazines. Uh, there's also a copy of the the booklet, a forty page booklet put together with it as well. So that's there if anyone wants to but if you do want if anyone wants one let anything get maybe more printed, but in the meantime if anyone wants a a PDF one copy uh, of, of the you know, email address to yourself and give it to me and I pass it on to Absolutely. Well, look, yeah. it's an incredible part of our history and, you know, we'll certainly want to follow up and yeah. explore more of these sort of hidden corners just through the past. You're exactly what we've we set this podcast up to do. You're, you're, you're recording yeah. your experience because, as you said, one day your words will kick the bucket and so many people have kicked the bucket and haven't put their stories down. And we're losing a huge part of our history through that. So, Ed, thank you very much for this today. Um, stay around a bit longer uh, in, in a, before you kick the bucket. We'll do the podcast three. And I can bet you the following dollar there's podcast three in there somewhere. Absolutely. You're absolutely gold mine of information um, of things that people, people will never have heard before. So, Ed, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.